Tales from the Vault, Episode 6. Kerfal, Part 1, by Edith Wharton. Narrated by David Sweeney Bear. Kerfal, House of Madness. 1. You ought to buy it, said my host. It's just the place for a solitary-minded devil like you. And it would be rather worthwhile to own the most romantic house in Brittany. The present people are dead broke, and it's going for a song. You ought to buy it. It was not with the least idea of living up to the character my friend Lorivin ascribed to me. As a matter of fact, under my unsociable exterior, I have always had secret yearnings for domesticity, that I took his hint one autumn afternoon and went to Kerfol. My friend was motoring over to Camper on business. He dropped me on the way at a crossroad on a heath, and said, First turn to the right, and second to the left, then straight ahead till you see an avenue. If you meet any peasants, don't ask your way. They don't understand French, and they would pretend they did, and mix you up. I'll be back for you here by sunset, and don't forget the tombs in the chapel. I followed Lanrevin's directions, with the hesitation occasioned by the usual difficulty of remembering whether he had said the first turn to the right and the second to the left, or the contrary. If I had met a peasant I should certainly have asked, and probably been sent astray, but I had the desert landscape to myself, and so stumbled on to the right turn and walked across the heath till I came to an avenue. It was so unlike any other avenue I have ever seen that I instantly knew it must be the avenue. The grey-trunked trees sprang up straight to a great height and then interwove their pale grey branches in a long tunnel through which the autumn light fell faintly. I know most trees by name, but I haven't to this day been able to decide what those trees were. They had the tall curve of elms, the tenuity of poplars, the ashen colour of olives under a rainy sky, and they stretched ahead of me for half a mile or more without a break in their arch. If ever I saw an avenue that unmistakably led to something, it was the avenue at Kerfall. My heart beat a little as I began to walk down it. Presently the trees ended, and I came to a fortified gate in a long wall. Between me and the wall was an open space of grass, with other grey avenues radiating from it. Behind the wall were tall slate roofs mossed with silver, a chapel belfry, the top of a keep. A moat filled with wild shrubs and brambles surrounded the place. The drawbridge had been replaced by a stone arch, and the portcullis by an iron gate. I stood for a long time on the hither side of the moat, gazing about me and letting the influence of the place sink in. I said to myself, If I wait long enough the guardian will turn up and show me the tombs and I rather hoped he wouldn't turn up too soon. I sat down on a stone and lit a cigarette. As soon as I had done it, it struck me as a puerile and portentous thing to do, with that great blind house looking down at me, and all the empty avenues converging on me. It may have been the depth of the silence that made me so conscious of my gesture. The squeak of my match sounded as loud as the scraping of a brake, and I almost fancied I heard it fall when I tossed it onto the grass. But there was more than that, a sense of irrelevance, of littleness, of futile bravado, in sitting there puffing my cigarette smoke into the face of such a past. I knew nothing of the history of Kerfol. 
I was new to Brittany, and Lanrivain had never mentioned the name to me till the day before, but one couldn't as much as glance at that pile without feeling in it a long accumulation of history. What kind of history I was not prepared to guess, perhaps only that sheer weight of many associated lives and deaths which gives a majesty to all old houses. But the aspect of Kerfol suggested something more, a perspective of stern and cruel memories stretching away, like its own grey avenues, into a blur of darkness. Certainly no house had ever more completely and finally broken with the present. As it stood there, lifting its proud roofs and gables to the sky, it might have been its own funeral monument. Tombs in the chapel! The whole place is a tomb, I reflected. I hoped more and more that the guardian would not come. The details of the place, however striking, would seem trivial compared with its collective impressiveness, and I wanted only to sit there and be penetrated by the weight of its silence. It's the very place for you, Lorivain had said, and I was overcome by the almost blasphemous frivolity of suggesting to any living being that Kerfol was the place for him. Is it possible that anyone could not see? I wondered. I did not finish the thought. What I meant was undefinable. I stood up and wandered toward the gate. I was beginning to want to know more, not to see more. I was by now so sure it was not a question of seeing, but to feel more, feel all the place had to communicate. But to get in one will have to rout out the keeper, I thought reluctantly, and hesitated. Finally I crossed the bridge and tried the iron gate. It yielded, and I walked through the tunnel formed by the thickness of the Chemin de Ronde. At the farther end a wooden barricade had been laid across the entrance, and beyond it was a court enclosed in noble architecture. The main building faced me, and I now saw that one half was a mere ruined front, with gaping windows through which the wild growths of the moat and the trees of the park were visible. The rest of the house was still in its robust beauty. One end abutted on the round tower, the other on the small traceried chapel, and in an angle of the building stood a graceful wellhead crowned with mossy urns. A few roses grew against the walls, and on an upper window-sill I remember noticing a pot of fuchsias. My sense of the pressure of the invisible began to yield to my architectural interest. The building was so fine that I felt a desire to explore it for its own sake. I looked about the court, wondering in which corner the guardian lodged. Then I pushed open the barrier and went in. As I did so, a dog barred my way. He was such a remarkably beautiful little dog that for a moment he made me forget the splendid place he was defending. I was not sure of his breed at the time, but have since learned that it was Chinese, and that he was of a rare variety called the Sleeve Dog. He was very small and golden-brown, with large brown eyes and a ruffled throat. He looked like a large, tawny chrysanthemum. I said to myself, These little beasts always snap and scream. Somebody will be out in a minute. The little animal stood before me, forbidding, almost menacing. There was anger in his large brown eyes. But he made no sound. He came no nearer. Instead, as I advanced, he gradually fell back, and I noticed that another dog, a vague, rough, brindled thing, had limped up on a lame leg. There'll be a hubbub now, I thought. 
for at the same moment a third dog, a long-haired white mongrel, slipped out of a doorway and joined the others. All three stood looking at me with grave eyes, but not a sound came from them. As I advanced they continued to fall back on muffled paws, still watching me. At a given point they'll all charge at my ankles. It's one of the jokes that dogs who live together put on one, I thought. I was not alarmed, for they were neither large nor formidable, but they let me wander about the court as I pleased, following me at a little distance, always the same distance, and always keeping their eyes on me. Presently I looked across at the ruined façade, and saw that in one of its empty window-frames another dog stood, a white pointer with one brown ear. He was an old, grave dog, much more experienced than the others, and he seemed to be observing me with a deeper intentness. "'I'll hear from him,' I said to myself, but he stood in the window-frame against the trees of the park, and continued to watch me without moving. I stared back at him for a time, to see if the sense that he was being watched would not rouse him. Half the width of the court lay between us, and we gazed at each other silently across it. But he did not stir, and at last I turned away. Behind me I found the rest of the pack, with a newcomer added, a small black greyhound with pale agate-coloured eyes. He was shivering a little, and his expression was more timid than that of the others. I noticed that he kept a little behind them and still there was not a sound. I stood there for fully five minutes, the circle about me, waiting as they seemed to be waiting. At last I went up to the little golden-brown dog and stooped to pat him. As I did so I heard myself give a nervous laugh. The little dog did not start, or growl, or take his eyes from me. He simply slipped back about a yard, and then paused and continued to look at me. Oh, hang it! I exclaimed, and walked across the court toward the well. As I advanced, the dogs separated and slid away into different corners of the court. I examined the urns on the well, tried a locked door or two, and looked up and down the dumb façade. Then I faced about toward the chapel. When I turned I perceived that all the dogs had disappeared except the old pointer, who still watched me from the window. It was rather a relief to be rid of that cloud of witnesses, and I began to look about me for a way to the back of the house. Perhaps there'll be somebody in the garden, I thought. I found a way across the moat, scrambled over a wall smothered in brambles, and got into the garden. A few lean hydrangeas and geraniums pined in the flower-beds, and the ancient house looked down on them indifferently. Its garden-side was plainer and severer than the other. The long granite front, with its few windows and steep roof, looked like a fortress prison. I walked around the farther wing, went up some disjointed steps, and entered the deep twilight of a narrow and incredibly old box-walk. The walk was just wide enough for one person to slip through, and its branches met overhead. It was like the ghost of a box-walk, its lustrous green all turning to the shadowy greyness of the avenues. I walked on and on, the branches hitting me in the face and springing back with a dry rattle, and at length I came out on the grassy top of the Chemin de Ronde. I walked along it to the gate-tower, looking down into the court which was just below me. Not a human being was in sight, and neither were the dogs. I found a flight of steps in the thickness of the wall and went down them, and when I emerged again into the court there stood the circle of dogs, the golden-brown one a little ahead of the others the black greyhound shivering in the rear. "'Oh, hang it, you uncomfortable beasts, you!' 
I exclaimed, my voice startling me with a sudden echo. The dogs stood motionless, watching me. I knew by this time that they would not try to prevent my approaching the house, and the knowledge left me free to examine them. I had a feeling that they must be horribly cowed to be so silent and inert. Yet they did not look hungry or ill-treated. Their coats were smooth and they were not thin, except the shivering greyhound. It was more as if they had lived a long time with people who never spoke to them or looked at them, as though the silence of the place had gradually benumbed their busy, inquisitive natures. And this strange passivity, this almost human lassitude, seemed to me sadder than the misery of starved and beaten animals. I should have liked to rouse them for a minute, to coax them into a game or a scamper, but the longer I looked into their fixed and weary eyes, the more preposterous the idea became. With the windows of that house looking down on us, how could I have imagined such a thing? The dogs knew better. They knew what the house would tolerate and what it would not. I even fancied that they knew what was passing through my mind, and pitied me for my frivolity. But even that feeling probably reached them through a thick fog of listlessness. I had an idea that their distance from me was as nothing to my remoteness from them. The impression they produced was that of having in common one memory so deep and dark that nothing that had happened since was worth either a growl or a wag. "'I say,' I broke out abruptly, addressing myself to the dumb circle, "'do you know what you look like, the whole lot of you? You look as if you'd seen a ghost, that's how you look.' I wonder if there is a ghost here, and nobody but you left for it to appear to. The dogs continued to gaze at me without moving. It was dark when I saw Langrevin's motor lamps at the crossroads, and I wasn't exactly sorry to see them. I had the sense of having escaped from the loneliest place in the whole world, and of not liking loneliness to that degree as much as I had imagined I should. My friend had brought his solicitor back from Camper for the night, and, seated beside a fat and affable stranger, I felt no inclination to talk of Kerfol. But that evening, when Lorivin and the solicitor were closeted in the study, Madame de Lorivin began to question me in the drawing-room. "'Well, are you going to buy Kerfol?' she asked, tilting up her gay chin from her embroidery. "'I haven't decided yet. The fact is, I couldn't get into the house.' I said, as if I had simply postponed my decision, and meant to go back for another look. You couldn't get in? Why? What happened? The family are mad to sell the place, and the old guardian has orders. Very likely, but the old guardian wasn't there. What a pity! He must have gone to market. But his daughter? There was nobody about. At least I saw no one. How extraordinary! Literally nobody! Nobody but a lot of dogs, a whole pack of them, who seemed to have the place to themselves. Madame de Lorivin let the embroidery slip to her knees and folded her hands on it. For several minutes she looked at me thoughtfully. A pack of dogs? You saw them? Saw them? I saw nothing else. How many? She dropped her voice a little. I've always wondered. I looked at her with surprise. I had supposed the place to be familiar to her. "'Have you never been to Kerfol? I asked. "'Oh, yes, often, but never on that day.' "'What day?' "'I'd quite forgotten, and so had Hervé, I'm sure. 
If we'd remembered, we never should have sent you today. But then, after all, one doesn't half believe that sort of thing, does one? What sort of thing? I asked, involuntarily sinking my voice to the level of hers. Inwardly, I was thinking, I knew there was something. Madame de Larivant cleared her throat and produced a reassuring smile. Didn't Hervé tell you the story of Carfol? An ancestor of his was mixed up in it. You know every Breton house has its ghost story, and some of them are rather unpleasant. Yes, but those dogs? Well, those dogs are the ghosts of Carfol. At least the peasants say there's one day in the year when a lot of dogs appear there, and that day the keeper and his daughter go off to Morlaix and get drunk. The women in Brittany drink dreadfully. She stooped to match a silk, then she lifted her charming, inquisitive Parisian face. Did you really see a lot of dogs? There isn't one at Kerfol, she said. 2. Lanrivain, the next day, hunted out a shabby calf volume from the back of an upper shelf of his library. Yes, here it is. What does it call itself? A History of the Assizes of the Duchy of Brittany. Camper, 1702. The book was written about a hundred years later than the Carefall affair, but I believe the account is transcribed pretty literally from the judicial records. Anyhow, it's queer reading, and there's a Hervé de Lanrivain mixed up in it. Not exactly my style, as you'll see, but then he's only a collateral. Here, take the book up to bed with you. I don't exactly remember the details, but after you've read it, I bet anything you'll leave your light burning all night. I left my light burning all night, as he had predicted, but it was chiefly because, till near dawn, I was absorbed in my reading. The account of the trial of Anne de Cornault, wife of the Lord of Kerfol, was long and closely printed. It was, as my friend had said, probably an almost literal transcription of what took place in the courtroom, and the trial lasted nearly a month. Besides, the type of the book was very bad. At first I thought of translating the old record, but it is full of wearisome repetitions, and the main lines of the story are forever straying off into side issues. So I have tried to disentangle it, and give it here in a simpler form. At times, however, I have reverted to the text, because no other words could have conveyed so exactly the sense of what I felt at Carefall, and nowhere have I added anything of my own. 3. It was in the year 16 that Yves de Cornault, lord of the domain of Carfol, went to the pardon of Locronan to perform his religious duties. He was a rich and powerful noble, then in his sixty-second year, but hale and sturdy, a great horseman and hunter, and a pious man. So all his neighbours attested. In appearance he was short and broad, with a swarthy face, legs slightly bowed from the saddle, a hanging nose, and broad hands with black hairs on them. He had married young and lost his wife and son soon after, and since then had lived alone at Kerfol. Twice a year he went to Morlaix, where he had a handsome house by the river, and spent a week or ten days there, and occasionally he rode to Rennes on business. Witnesses were found to declare that during these absences he led a life different from the one he was known to lead at Kerfol where he busied himself with his estate, attended mass daily, and found his only amusement in hunting the wild boar and waterfowl. 
But these rumours are not particularly relevant, and it is certain that among people of his own class in the neighbourhood he passed for a stern and even austere man, observant of his religious obligations and keeping strictly to himself. There was no talk of any familiarity with the women on his estate, though at that time the nobility were very free with their peasants. Some people said he never looked at a woman since his wife's death, but such things are hard to prove, and the evidence on this point was not worth much. Well, in his sixty-second year, Yves de Corneau went to the Pardon at Locronon and saw there a young lady of Douarnenez, who had ridden over Pillion behind her father to do her duty to the saint. Her name was Anne de Barrigon, and she came of good old Breton stock, but much less great and powerful than that of Yves de Corneau, and her father had squandered his fortune at cards, and lived almost like a peasant in his little granite manor on the moors. I have said I would add nothing of my own to this bald statement of a strange case, but I must interrupt myself here to describe the young lady who rode up to the lichgate of Locronon at the very moment when the Baron de Corneau was also dismounting there. I take my description from a faded drawing in red crayon, sober and truthful enough to be by a late pupil of the Clouets, which hangs in Lorivain's study, and is said to be a portrait of Anne de Barrigan. It is unsigned and has no mark of identity but the initials A.B. and the date 16, the year after her marriage. It represents a young woman with a small oval face, almost pointed, yet wide enough for a full mouth with a tender depression at the corners. The nose is small, and the eyebrows are set rather high, far apart, and as lightly pencilled as the eyebrows in a Chinese painting. The forehead is high and serious, and the hair, which one feels to be fine and thick and fair, is drawn off it and lies close like a cap. The eyes are neither large nor small, hazel probably, with a look at once shy and steady. A pair of beautiful long hands are crossed below the lady's breast. The chaplain of Kerfol and other witnesses averred that when the baron came back from Locronan, he jumped from his horse, ordered another to be instantly saddled, called to a young page to come with him, and rode away that same evening to the south. His steward followed the next morning with coffers laden on a pair of pack-mules. The following week Yves de Corneau rode back to Kerfol, sent for his vassals and tenants, and told them he was to be married at All Saints to Anne de Barrigan of Douarnenez. And on All Saints' Day the marriage took place. As to the next few years, the evidence on both sides seems to show that they passed happily for the couple. No one was found to say that Yves de Corneau had been unkind to his wife, and it was plain to all that he was content with his bargain. Indeed, it was admitted by the chaplain and other witnesses for the prosecution that the young lady had a softening influence on her husband, and that he became less exacting with his tenants, less harsh to peasants and dependents, and less subject to the fits of gloomy silence which had darkened his widowhood. As to his wife, the only grievance her champions could call up in her behalf was that Kerfol was a lonely place, and that when her husband was away on business at Rennes or Morlaix, whither she was never taken. She was not allowed so much as to walk in the park unaccompanied. But no one asserted that she was unhappy, though one servant-woman said she had surprised her crying, and had heard her say that she was a woman accursed to have no child, and nothing in life to call her own. 
but that was a natural enough feeling in a wife attached to her husband, and certainly it must have been a great grief to Yves de Cornault that she bore no son. Yet he never made her feel her childlessness as a reproach, she admits this in her evidence, but seemed to try to make her forget it by showering gifts and favours on her. Rich though he was, he had never been open-handed, but nothing was too fine for his wife, in the way of silks or gems or linen, or whatever else she fancied. Every wandering merchant was welcome at Kerfall, and when the master was called away he never came back without bringing his wife a handsome present, something curious and particular, from Morlaix or Rennes or Camper. One of the waiting-women gave in cross-examination an interesting list of one year's gifts, which I copy. From Morlaix, a carved ivory junk, with Chinamen at the oars, that a strange sailor had brought back as a votive offering for Notre-Dame de la Clarté, above Plumenac. From Camper, an embroidered gown, worked by the nuns of the Assumption. From Rennes, a silver rose that opened and showed an amber virgin with a crown of garnets. From Morlaix, again, a length of Damascus velvet, shot with gold, bought of a Jew from Syria and for Michaelmas that same year, from Rennes, a necklet or bracelet of round stones, emeralds and pearls and rubies, strung like beads on a fine gold chain. This was the present that pleased the lady best, the woman said. Later on, as it happened, it was produced at the trial, and appears to have struck the judges and the public as a curious and valuable jewel. The very same winter the baron absented himself again, this time as far as Bordeaux, and on his return he brought his wife something even odder and prettier than the bracelet. It was a winter evening when he rode up to Kerfol, and, walking into the hall, found her sitting by the hearth, her chin on her hand, looking into the fire. He carried a velvet box in his hand, and, setting it down, lifted the lid and let out a little golden-brown dog. Anne de Cornot exclaimed with pleasure as the little creature bounded toward her. "'Oh, it looks like a bird or a butterfly,' she cried as she picked it up, and the dog put its paws on her shoulders and looked at her with eyes like a Christian's. After that she would never have it out of her sight, and petted and talked to it as if it had been a child, as indeed it was the nearest thing to a child she was to know. Yves de Cornot was much pleased with his purchase. The dog had been brought to him by a sailor from an East Indian merchantman, and the sailor had bought it off a pilgrim in a bazaar at Jaffa, who had stolen it from a nobleman's wife in China. A perfectly permissible thing to do, since the pilgrim was a Christian, and the nobleman a heathen doomed to hellfire. Yves de Cornot had paid a long price for the dog, for they were beginning to be in demand at the French court, and the sailor knew he had got hold of a good thing. But Anne's pleasure was so great that, to see her laugh and play with the little animal, her husband would doubtless have given twice the sum. So far all the evidence is at one, and the narrative plain sailing, but now the steering becomes difficult. I will try to keep as nearly as possible to Anne's own statements, though toward the end. Poor thing! Well, to go back. The very year after the little brown dog was brought to Kerfall, Yves de Cornault, one winter night, was found dead at the head of a narrow flight of stairs leading down from his wife's rooms to a door opening on the court. It was his wife who found him and gave the alarm, so distracted poor wretch with fear and horror, for his blood was all over her, that at first the roused household could not make out what she was saying, and thought she had suddenly gone mad. 
But there, sure enough, at the top of the stairs lay her husband, stone dead and head foremost, the blood from his wounds dripping down to the step below him. He had been dreadfully scratched and gashed about the face and throat, as if with curious pointed weapons, and one of his legs had a deep tear in it which had cut an artery and probably caused his death. But how did he come there, and who had murdered him? To be continued in part two. Thanks for listening. This was a DSB Audio production, narrated and produced by David Sweeney Bear. Visit dsbaudio.com for more full-length audiobooks. If you enjoyed this episode, leave me a comment and let me know what you thought. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast for future episodes, and check out the DSB Audio channel on youtube.com. Until the next time, happy listening.